following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we'll uh, continue on this morning in a series that Grant started for us next week. Uh, last week, rather. A teaching series. Yep, no, we haven't got that gift. We, um, we started a series last week, Grant begun it, on the miracles of Jesus. And over the next few weeks, through early Feb, we're going to be looking at some of the particular miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly life and ministry. Uh, selected miracles that highlight different attributes of who Jesus was and some of the ways in which he used his power while he was on earth. And one of the points that Grant made early last week, which is critical for the whole series, is the point of the miracles of Jesus. In that, the point of Jesus' miracles wasn't just to prove to us all that he was divine, that he was the Son of God. It wasn't like a magic trick so that everyone would then believe he was, he was God. The miracles, especially in the Gospel of John, are called signs. And the question is, signs of what? They're signs of the kingdom. They're signs of new creation. They're signs, as we sung, of God's reign breaking in on earth. And when you understand the miracles in that way, it gives you a new perspective to read them. That each of the miracles of Jesus are, are, are pointing us, they're signposting us to another aspect of God's kingdom coming about on earth and another aspect of what God's kingdom will look like when it's fully and finally here in the new creation. They're little close-up glimpses of the full and final kingdom. So in that sense, they're, they're orientated towards new creation as much as they are for the present. So with that lens on, we're going to look at another of the miracles of Jesus this morning in John chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, uh, flick open to John 5. The words will be on the screen as well, but it's always good to have the Bible in front of you. Flick through the pages as we go. John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So this miracle happens in Jerusalem, it happens at a pool called Bethesda, and it centers around this guy whose name we don't know, we never told the guy's name, who receives this miracle. All we know about him is that he's been an invalid for 38 years, in other words, he can't walk, doesn't have the use of his legs, he cannot get around by himself. 
Now, it's interesting that we are told he's been an invalid for 38 years. So that means 39 years ago he could walk. This is not a condition that he's had for life. He wasn't born this way. There was a period of time in this guy's life, we don't know how long it is because we don't know how old he was, but there was a period of time when he had full strength and full mobility in his body. So something has happened to this guy. It could have been an injury of some kind, it could have been a disease or an illness of some kind with, with medicine not being nearly what it is today. It would have been easy for some illness to overtake his body and uh, make him incapable of, of functioning in his legs anymore. What, whatever has happened, this guy has suffered tragedy. This guy has suffered profound loss and it has left him unable to move by himself. Now, if he was around today, take a minute to think what would happen to this guy if he lived in 21st century New Zealand. He would be on possibly ACC. He would probably have uh, some kind of sickness benefit so that even though the income he received would be meager, it would be enough to get by. He would almost certainly be able to have a roof over his head. He would be entitled probably to some kind of home care. He would have basic medical services provided through a public health care system. He would be able to eke out some kind of survival type existence. Not so in the first century. He's living in the Roman Empire. He's living in a, in a century and in a culture within an empire that did not care if you suffered this kind of illness. There was no ACC. There was no sickness benefit. There was no home care that came in. There was none of that. This guy was left alone. He was just marginalized by the rest of society and by the community. He was just left to get by however he could or left alone simply to die, which is what happened to many, many people in his condition. There was no mercy. There was no public system that took care of this guy. He was on the absolute bottom rung of the social ladder. Add to that, in this kind of culture, which was a very honor-shame-based culture, there would have been huge social stigma attached to this. He would have been a disgrace to his family. He would have been an embarrassment to his friends. He would have had all this negative social stigma attached to his condition. And then in many circles of the ancient world, there was a belief that if you suffered in this way, if you suffered long-term debilitating injury, you were cursed by God or by the gods, whichever gods you happen to subscribe to. So if you suffered this kind of injury, you must have done something to deserve it. You've upset a God, you've done something wrong, and basically it's your fault, and therefore you don't get any compassion, you don't get any mercy. God's written you off, and so have we. This is the world that this man is living in. A life of shame and misery, detached from community and marginalized by society. And we're told that he spends his days at this place in Jerusalem called Bethesda. It's a pool complex. And the reason that he spends time there, along with a lot of other paralyzed, lame, and disabled people, is two reasons. One, this pool had a whole lot of colored colonnades or columns around it, which provided some shade. So in the heat of the Mediterranean sun, these people could come there. Somehow he must have been lifted there by somebody else, perhaps who had mercy on him each day and took him to this pool and sat him under one of these columns where he got some shade, some respite from the baking sun. And the other reason that he sits at this pool is because of a particular myth involving the pool of Bethesda. It was believed that this pool, it is believed by archaeologists, the pool sat on top of a natural spring, a natural water spring that ran underneath it. And from time to time, the water in the natural spring would bubble up into the pool. And it would bubble to the surface, and so it would ripple the waters. And you'd see these bubbles come up, and it would disturb the surface of the waters. Now, the people believed at the time that when that happened, when the water of the pool started bubbling, that an angel of the Lord had come down and troubled the waters. 
and that when that happened, the first person who got in the pool would be healed. So you can imagine what happened when the water started bubbling. You know, all these people lying around the place, suddenly someone sees a bubble and it's chaos. People are climbing over each other if they're able to. Maybe someone's lifting someone else. They're all clambering into this pool. Someone gets in first and apparently gets healed. We don't know whether anyone actually got healed that way. I doubt it. But they still believe that this was the thing you had to do. So now you end up with a a, a whole bunch of disabled, crippled, poor, paralyzed, wet people (laughs) still not healed, still miserable, and then they return back to where they were. And goodness knows how many times this happened. But this was life for them. And this kind of myth was the myth that they lived by. And then one day Jesus comes along. Jesus, this rabbi from Galilee, most people would probably have heard of him as a prophet, as a worker of miracles. He comes and visits Bethesda. He comes into this pool complex. And again, you can imagine the chaos around having this kind of person present in this kind of place. But Jesus is purposeful. Jesus is intentional. There's one guy that he's come to see. And he makes his way through the crowd, no doubt with great compassion towards the others, but he hasn't come to heal everybody. He's come to heal one guy. And he makes his way to this man. And you just imagine standing in front of this guy, just looking down into this man's eyes. Imagine if you were that guy, looking into the eyes of Jesus, just eyes full of love, eyes full of compassion, full of grace. And Jesus asks him a question. In verse 6, he turns to the man and he says, do you want to get well? Now that sounds like a stupid question, doesn't it? Do you want to get well? I mean, you can understand if he'd asked, how do you want to get well? Or where do you want to get well? Or what's wrong? But just the simple question, do you want to get well? It's almost offensive. Of course the guy wants to get well. He's been an invalid for 38 years. What's he going to say? No, Jesus, I don't really want to get well. I'm pretty happy here by the pool. I love this nice colored colonnade that I've got here. And I love jumping into the pool whenever I get the opportunity. Of course he wants to be healed. Why is Jesus asking this basic question? I think he knew exactly what he was doing. I think he's asking the most important question that this guy had to answer if he truly wanted to be healed. It's a question that goes to the heart of his condition, not just his physical condition, but his spiritual inner heart condition. Do you want to get well? Just think for a minute of what would happen to this guy if Jesus healed him. If he was suddenly able to use his legs again. All of a sudden, he would no longer be a victim. He would no longer be an invalid. He would be expected to get a job to become a contributing member of society again. He would be expected to re-enter his family life if he still had a family, to come back to them, to provide for them. He would probably be expected, given the life that he's led for the last 38 years, to take some pity and some compassion on those who were still in that situation and do all he could to minister to them and help to alleviate some of their suffering. In other words, his whole identity would change. He could no longer be a victim of this. He would now be a contributor. He would now be a provider. He would now be a responsible member of his community and of his society. There was a lot that would go along with this guy being healed. So Jesus gets to the heart of it with this question, do you want to be healed? Really? Truly? There's a lot of things in our lives that we need to be healed from. They may be physical, like this guy, maybe a physical condition, an injury or an illness. 
but it may be something else. It may be some other kind of affliction in our lives. You may have had something done to you by someone. A wound that's been caused in your life, a scar that hasn't healed, something that runs so deep and it's always there just below the surface and it doesn't take much for it to bubble up. And you live in that place of being the victim and carrying that wound and it's come to define you. You may live with a particular addiction. Addiction is an awful thing. It gets its claws into your life and it doesn't let you go. It's an awful cycle in which the more you try and the more you exert willpower and energy and self-control, the more powerless you feel. And maybe you feel like you're in the grip of some kind of addiction that has just got a hold on you and you cannot be released from it. You desperately long for healing from that. Maybe it's some issue of your character and there's a pattern of relating that's not healthy. Well, there's a pattern of reacting that's not healthy. There's a way of speaking or thinking or treating other people that is not reflective of the character of Jesus, not reflected of who God has called you and made you to be. There's this character issue, this go-to pattern in your life that you can't seem to get out of. And on one level, we look at these things that we struggle with, these either things that we've caused ourselves or things that have been done to us in our lives. We look at our pain, we look at these struggles, and we, we want to be healed from them. Of course we do. We don't want to struggle with this addiction. We don't want to carry around this wound. We don't want to have this negative character trait. We want to be healed. But I think there's a deeper level at which sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is, actually, I don't really want that healing. There's a guy I talked to a few years ago who had been really offended by what someone else had done to him. Something had been done against him, and this guy was mad, and he'd let the other guy know about it. He'd blown up at him. There'd been a huge fallout, and this guy was wounded, and he was offended, and he was really upset and frustrated. And as I talked to him, I could see that, and I could relate to the fact that something had been done, and it, it, it wasn't great, and it wasn't right, and, and there'd been a real wound that had been caused. But as I talked to him, it was also clear, this guy really didn't want to resolve the situation. I mean, on one level, he did. On one level, he wanted apologies, and he wanted you know, people to make sure he knew how he, they knew how he felt and all of this. But on another level, he didn't really want, he liked to be the victim. He now owned that role. He was the offended one. He was the wounded one. And that's who he was going to be. He didn't really have much of an interest in engaging in any real process of, of reconciliation or looking at how he'd behaved in the middle of that conflict. He just wanted everyone else to pander to him. At a deep level, he didn't really want to be healed. He wanted to wallow in what had been done to him. He wanted to keep being the victim. That was his identity. I think we can so easily do this, can't we? I know I can. Something's been done to us. We've caused damage to our own character, and we just want to hold on to it. The problem is we have this stuff in our life. We have this, this junk. We have this baggage. And one of the most perverse things about our human nature is that we attach ourselves to it. When someone does something to us, when our character is affected, we attach ourselves to it. We, we, we develop this awful attachment disorder to our own weakness, our own failure, and our own suffering. At one level, we want to be free of addiction. At another level, it provides a certain escape mechanism in our life, a certain thrill. It provides us with a way out from having to deal with the real stuff that's in front of us. It means we can go off into this other world 
and have certain experiences that prevent us from having to face reality. On one level, we want to be healed in this relationship that has gone wrong. At another level, it kind of feels good just to wallow in self-pity, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of feels good just to wallow around in the mud, feel sorry for ourselves. That's a, somehow, that's a comforting feeling. That's the problem with our pain, is it's, it's awful and yet it's comforting. That's the problem with depression. It's an awful thing, and yet at a deep level, it's, it becomes a companion. It becomes a friend, and it's known, and the darkness envelops us, and it becomes our identity. On one level, we want to be transformed people. We want to pursue the character of Christ. On another level, it's just too hard. It's too hard to work against the natural patterns of relating and reacting and responding in different situations and do something about that. We'd rather just stay as we are. This is just who we are. This is just our identity. We are split-level beings. On a surface level, yes, we want to be healed. We'll put our hand up to be the first one Jesus heals. On another, deeper, more fundamental level, so often the answer is no. We don't truly desire that healing because we've made friends with our pain. Psalm 88 in the Bible is the darkest psalm in the whole book. It's the only psalm that doesn't have any kind of positive ending or anything happy about it at all. It doesn't end on a positive note. The whole thing is just bleak. It's not a good rainy day psalm. Uh, It's not a pick-me-up at all. And there's a reason for that. It's in the very last verse of the psalm where the psalmist says, You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. Now, I think that's not just a description. I think that's a diagnosis. I think that is what has happened, and that's a choice he's made. He's chosen to make darkness his closest friend. He's chosen to make friends with his pain, to make friends with sin, to make friends with affliction. And because of that, as long as darkness is your closest friend, you can't be healed. You don't want to be healed. You've made friends with the very thing that holds you back from the life that Jesus promises. So how did this guy back in John respond as Jesus turns to him and says, do you want to be well? Well, verse 7, the guy says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. So he's still way back in the old story. He's back in this myth about the pool and the angel and the water being troubled. He's completely lost sight of who's in front of him. He is not focused on the healer who's right there. He's still trying to think about these other ways to be healed, these superficial, these mythical ways to be healed, and he's not seeing Jesus. This is the problem when we don't come face to face with that question, do we truly want to be healed in the inmost level of our being? As long as we're just dealing with surface level stuff and surface level fixes and not coming to terms with our greatest need, we fail to see Jesus. We fail to see him standing right there in front of us because the reality is the healer is here. The healer is present. Jesus is present in our lives and with us. He's standing right in front of us. He's standing right in front of you as he was to this guy. And he's asking you that same question. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be healed? Jesus comes to us with healing power. He comes to us with the authority and with the power to heal our lives, to mend what is broken and restore what is not right. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is automatically going to fix what's gone wrong in your life. It doesn't mean that he's going to 
wave his magic wand and suddenly everything will be right. One day we'll be fully restored in the new creation. One day Jesus' healing will be complete. But that day waits for him to return and for all things to be made new. That's why this miracle is a sign of the final kingdom. That's why this miracle points us towards the new creation when we will truly be completely healed people, body, mind, spirit, emotionally, physically, mentally, in every way, those of us who are united to Jesus will be fully healed in the new creation. And it was all because of what was accomplished through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in his earthly life. We wait for that day of healing, but in the present, we have a taste of it. In the present, Jesus still comes to us as healer. And he still invites us to receive his healing power in our lives. But he directs his healing in the present at the deepest level of our being, not just at the surface level stuff that we think we want and the stuff that's wrong in our lives right now circumstantially. Jesus directs his healing power towards the deepest level of our being, the ground of our being, what the Bible calls the heart, the cardia, the seat of our emotions and our reason, and our will, and our desire, the ground of our being, the heart, that's where Jesus directs his healing power, and that's the, the level of our being to which he asks this question, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well at a heart level? The deepest recesses of your being, do you truly want to be cleansed? Not superficial, but deep, deep cleansing and purging of what is not right. And the irony is, that's the very level at which we often reject the healing in which we are so reluctant because we prefer a self-oriented, self-obsessed, self-preoccupied way of living and way of running our lives. There is such a deep streak of selfishness that runs through the core of our being so, so deeply. It's that level that Jesus asks the question, do you want that to be healed? Do you want to turn away from self? Do you want to turn towards me? Do you want to turn towards this newness of life? Jesus asks that question to every one of us. Do we want to be healed? Do we want to have new hearts? As Ezekiel puts it, do you want a heart transplant? Do you want the old heart gone, the new heart come? Take away the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus offers, to be made new in the core of our being, to be cleansed and to be renewed. That's what the healer comes to do in our lives. And as he heals us, that healing spills over into the rest of our being. It spills over into our relationships, spills over into our emotional, our mental life, as that gradually becomes healed through the power of Jesus. It spills over into who we are in relationships with other people, but it starts at the deepest level of our being. And so Jesus says to this guy, look at the way that he heals him. He turns to this guy in a very direct way in verse 8. He says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. You notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't pick the guy up. He doesn't lift him up. He doesn't just use this force and levitate the guy to his feet. Jesus commands. Jesus instructs. The, 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 the healing comes in the imperative voice as Jesus says to him, get up and walk. And imagine this guy starting to get to his feet and then realizing there's strength there. There's stability. I can stand. And the healing comes about as he stands up. As he gets to his feet, he realizes that the strength is returning and Jesus is healing. Jesus' healing of this man is actualized as the man gets up and begins to walk. This is so often how it is 
with Jesus in our lives. Jesus doesn't just fix our problems. He doesn't just do it all for us. But he says to us, get up and walk. We've got to walk towards that healing. We've got to embrace the healing power of Jesus in our life. Get up and walk. Get up and start moving. And that getting up and walking, it might mean a lot of different things for you, but it's going to mean ending a friendship. It's going to mean ending a friendship with your own pain. It's going to mean ending a friendship with the things that are holding you back, the things that are reflecting you, the things that others have done to you that have made you a victim. It's going to mean ending an attachment to those things that you've created and fostered at a deep, even subconscious level of your being. It's going to mean breaking that attachment. And that means changing the way you see your circumstances, that you are not a victim of what has been done to you, but you allow God to rename you as a chosen son, as a chosen daughter with a new identity, loved, delighted in, chosen valued by God the Father, accepted in His grace, accepted in Jesus. That's your name. That's who you are, not victim anymore. You've got to change the way you see yourself. That's what it may mean for you to get up and walk. It may mean for you that you don't accept the fact that how you are is just how you're always going to be. That just what is wrong with you and what is afflicting you is just the way that things will always be and your character as it is now will never change and your relationship with God, the level it is now, will never change. There are no more depths, there are no more heights. That's just what it is. That's a lie of the evil one that Jesus confronts. And if we're to truly get well and be healed and mended in the deepest level of our being, we need to confront that lie and embrace the truth that there are greater depths that God has yet to show us in our relationship with Him. We need to get up and start walking towards that by embracing the life that Jesus has for us, by putting in place practices in our life that will help us grow, practices of being still with God, hearing from Him, immersing ourselves in His Word, listening to Him, praying for ourselves and for others. These kinds of practices, not legalistic practices, but it's like putting up the sails so the wind of the Spirit can blow and take us forward. Get up and walk. What does getting up and walking look like for you? Not just standing there and waiting for it to happen, but getting up and walking. It may mean confronting a situation that has happened to you that's been unaddressed, that needs a conversation, that needs some interaction, or perhaps just needs a process of forgiveness. It may mean for you, if you don't know Jesus, and you've just been thinking about Jesus, and you've been wondering about this faith, and you've been exploring, and you've been around the circle so many times, Jesus is saying to you, get up and walk towards me. Get up and embrace the life that I'm offering you. Stop just playing with it and toying with it. Embrace it. Lean into the relationship with Jesus that he's inviting you to have. The first step to get up and walk may be to open your arms and receive the new life that Jesus offers you through becoming a child of his and being transformed by his grace and being a forgiven person in relationship with God. Maybe that's getting up and walking for you. And it may mean drawing other people around you. It almost always does. Because moving forward in our spiritual pilgrimage takes community. It's not something we're supposed to do in an isolated way. It might mean drawing one or two people alongside you this year who can be an encouragement, who you give permission to ask you some difficult questions regularly. It may mean seeking out a counsellor that can give you some professional help and support, placing yourself in a community context where you know people have got your back, they'll love you, they'll pray for you, and they'll support you along the journey. That may be for you the step to get up and walk, but it's going to start as we lose a friend and we separate ourselves from those things that are holding us back and tripping us up and entangling us 
in a life other than the one that Jesus wants for us. I talked to a young woman uh, a little while ago who was suffering in some quite serious ways in physical health and emotional health as well, and those things were pretty tied together for her. And she shared how this question of do you want to get well had really been playing in her mind, and she didn't reference this particular passage. I don't know whether it had come out of the story or not, but she really felt like God had been challenging her with this question of do you want to get well? And she said to me, if I'm honest with myself, the answer is no. And the reason that she gave is that for her, she knew that as long as she was experiencing this illness, people gave her attention. And it was an amazingly humble thing to say. But, but she was honest enough to say that, that when, when she was struggling like this, people were very kind and they were practically helpful and they were very supportive and they were around her and they were interacting with her all the time and she loved it. Because at a deep level, the issue was loneliness. And that recognition, I think that moment of acknowledging that honestly for her, when, when she was faced with that question, do you want to get well? The answer was no. That was a huge step for her in beginning to get well because she faced it, she owned up to it honestly, and then she began taking some steps to start getting well. But it was a moment of real honesty, real vulnerability, and I think real self-awareness. That's where it starts. It's a confronting question. Perhaps the most important question Jesus asked anyone that he healed in the Gospels. Do you want to get well? It's a question that echoes through the centuries right into our lives and hearts today. Do you truly want to get well? Not superficial, not surface level. Of course, we can all say yes to that. But deeply, do we want to be well? Do we want to be healed by Jesus? And if the answer for you is no, then own up to it. There's no point shirking from that. There's no point hiding from that. Face that and ask God to help you begin dealing with that and dealing for the reasons why that is. Why are you at a deep level resisting that healing? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it? What is the pleasure? What is the comfort that your own pain and woundedness is delivering you that is making you resistant to the healing that Jesus offers? And begin peeling back those layers so that eventually the answer at the deepest level can be yes. And then are you willing to take a step? Are you willing to get up and walk this year? To move towards Jesus and to move towards others who also want that kind of healing? Whatever that step is that God's pressing on your heart, are you willing to get up and to begin walking and trust that as you do, the healing power of Jesus is gradually, not overnight, but gradually going to be released into your life? But it all starts with that question. Do you really want to be healed? That's the issue. Let's pray. Jesus, we're really confronted by that question this morning. And I pray you'd bring to our minds now the things that we need to be healed from. And if there are things, Jesus, we don't even know that we need to be healed from, bring those to our minds as well. Things that we are not even self-aware enough to know or to name. Show us the things that we need healing from deeply, the needs that we have. And Jesus, we hear you asking that question today. Do we want to get well? Help us to answer that question honestly. I pray, Lord, that if 
In our heart of hearts, the answer is no. I pray that there would be no one here that is led into guilt or condemnation through that, but only led to you as the source of our healing. And I pray that however we answer that question, the very next picture in our minds would be the picture of you as the healer standing before us, ready and willing to release your healing power into our lives. Jesus, we want that so badly. And yet so much of it, so much of us, seems to reject it. We're such conflicted people. Help us with sincere hearts to embrace your healing power in our lives and to take the steps we need to, to make that healing real in the practical realities of our everyday lives. Thank you that you are our healer. Thank you that you have already purchased that healing on the cross and now your greatest desire is to outwork it in our lives. Thank you for a wonderful invitation to be healed at the deepest level of our being. Give us strength and courage of your spirit to embrace it and apply it in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.